Now, let me read to you. A, we, we're, we're continuing this little four-week series on the birth narrative uh, of, um, of Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're in Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read you a very familiar passage that you'll recognize, I'm sure. But it is, of course, right at the center in the birth narrative of Christ Jesus. Here it goes. In those, day, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, this endures forever. Guys, it is rather unfortunate, I think, that this whole scene has been so sentimentalized by us, actually. Um, I blame the nativity scenes for it, uh, uh, you know, with the smiling cows and all the cherubic faces. Um, but not to say that, that nativity scenes are bad, um, but I did hear Jimmy Umloff once say that if you have camels at your nativity scene, you probably, it was probably made in China. Um, but so part of the reason uh, it, that this scene is so sentimentalized among us is that. But the other, the other blame, I think, goes to the culture. Because it is to the culture's advantage to sanitize this whole thing so that they can continue to think of it as legend. Um, the culture doesn't oppose this as long as we consider it legend. So um, all the smiling cows and all the cherubic faces just allows them uh, to view this as some kind of legendary, an important legend, a sweet legend, and, and has some lessons in it for us, but legend nonetheless. Now, guys, um, no Christian would ever call this legend. <clears throat> but one mistake I think we can make is that we, um, because it's been so sanitized, we miss its import. We, we miss the profundity of what's being said to us here by Luke because other things capture our attention, like somebody wanting a hippopotamus as a Christmas present or or Taylor Swift saying she gave her heart away, but the next day it got stomped on. And, but we are, um, we are distracted by that and miss some of the things that are so profound in this little story. So what I want to do this morning is simply point out a couple of three things that I, that I hope you've not missed. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you've already seen them here. And I hope so. But if not, if you're caught up with the smiling cows, um, I want you to see these things as we, I hope, further enjoy um, this little story that we know so well. 
Here's the first thing that we uh, are in danger of missing. Gang, um, I, 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 do you remember the part of the story when the wise men show up at Herod's palace? Do you remember that part? That's in Matthew 2, not Luke 2. But you remember the wise men, they show up at Herod's palace there in Jerusalem, and they ask Herod, they say, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Remember that? Well, that really wasn't a very smart question to ask because they were asking it of the man who thought himself to be the king of the Jews. So they were asking the king of the Jews, where is the king of the Jews? And that wasn't real smart. But Herod plays along with this whole thing. And um, so he calls in all of his scholars and he says, listen, uh, uh, where, th- these guys got a question. Uh, could you help answer their question? And they say, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And they say, well, it is written... Uh, that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Written by whom? Well, of course, Micah. Micah, 650 years earlier, had prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Now, um, you understand, I hope, that that piece of prophecy complicates lots of things. Why? Why does it complicate it? Well, let me explain. Gang, did you notice in our text, in verse 4, you're told that Mary and Joseph are living in Nazareth at the time they start this journey. In fact, in chapter 1, um, we're told that when, uh, when the angel Gabriel came to visit Mary to announce to her that she would be with child, she was living in Nazareth when she got that announcement. In fact, I've been to Nazareth. I've been to Nazareth several times. And there is a church there in Nazareth called the Church of the Annunciation. That is, supposedly, this church is built over Mary's house where she received this visit from the angel Gabriel. Now, I have to say that there is a competing site right down the street closer to a well. But be that as it may, uh, there's this place of Annunciation, and it's in Nazareth, ladies and gentlemen. And here's the point. Nazareth is not Bethlehem. Huh, pretty insightful, don't you think? Um, Nazareth is about 70 miles northwest of Bethlehem. Now, um, you know, I have, I, I've made that trip, that little 70-mile journey from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. But, of course, I was on bus. I was in a bus, an air-conditioned bus, a nice bus. In fact, we had to stop for snacks and bathrooming. Uh, and not only that, we spent four days uh, looking at Jerusalem by the time, from the time we left Nazareth to the time we made to, to Bethlehem. This little couple, um, they made that same journey. Took them a little longer. But they made it on foot. Now, how could a young couple, the wife of which is eight months pregnant... How could they be coaxed into making that trip on foot all the way down from Nazareth to Bethlehem? You ever thought about that? Folks, have you ever thought about what is unfolded here? That that God, first of all, ordained that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, but the mother of the Messiah, 
and the legal father of the Messiah, lives in Nazareth. And so what does he do? He then puts into the heart of Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man on the face of the planet at that moment, he puts into the heart of Caesar Augustus that he needs to call for a census. Now the census, of course, is necessary so that he can have a tax. But the tax is based on the census. And so what they've got to do is get everybody to come out of where they are and go back to their hometowns. And how about that? Joseph is of the house in the lineage of David, who's from Bethlehem. And so God puts into the heart of this Roman emperor that he is to have this, this census taken so that he can ultimately move two little, insignificant, unknown, poor people from Nazareth to Bethlehem. (laughs) Folks, nothing short of an occupying enemy army supporting an imperial decree from Caesar could make this little couple or coax this little couple to make that journey at that time. An imperial decree issued by Caesar Augustus is that which compelled this little couple to mount up and head southeast 70 miles when she was eight months pregnant. Now tell me, who would you say are the real significant players in this story? Caesar and Quirinius or Joseph and Mary? Who knew or even cared about what Micah had said 650 years earlier? Well, God cared. Heaven cared. And so the real compelling force behind this trip didn't come from the Roman army. Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, the one who is pulling the strings in all of this event is not the Roman government. It's Yahweh. And history is unfolding to serve his purposes. Gang, um, God, the the Savior, has got to come from Judah, not from Zebulun. The, The Christ, the son of David, has got to be born in the city of David, not Nazareth. So what God does is orchestrate this enormous, intricate, world, uh, Roman Empire-wide drama to get two little people who nobody knew from that town to that town. (laughs) So you see, while you're concentrating on the smiling cows, you just might miss that this is an elegant story about the providence of God. 
the unfolding of the sovereign purposes and will of God while we sing Frosty the Snowman. And it's Frosty that keeps us from seeing providence. The intricacies and the beauty and the wonder of providence unfolding in this little story or this story about two little insignificant people that nobody knew. And Herod and Caesar Augustus cannot stop them. But Herod and Caesar Augustus could serve as pawns in the accomplishing of the ends of God because that's what Proverbs 21 says, that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it whithersoever he wills. And you want to... You want an illustration of the heart of the king being in the hand of the Lord? You want a a good illustration? Put it right there next to the smiling cows. Because that's what you're seeing here, ladies and gentlemen, is the providence of God. Getting the Savior where he... No, getting the little couple to where they need to be so that the Savior can fulfill the predictions and the prophecies made about him 650 years earlier. (laughs) Oh, wow, don't miss that. Now, here's the second thing I I hope you won't miss in the the whole sentimentality of of the season. Don't miss the brutality of this this scene. Um, Let me explain. Gang, a, a couple of years ago, I, I preached a series of sermons on Isaiah 53. I know you remember how wonderful they were. Um, but it was, it was in the spring, it was before Easter, and I was trying to prepare us for Easter. And so I preached four sermons on um, Isaiah 53. Um, Isaiah 53 is the most messianic passage in the entire Old Testament. And in that, that passage, in Isaiah 53, verse 2, there is a metaphor a metaphor uh, which struck me then and it strikes me now. It's a metaphor describing the Messiah. There there are several in that passage, but the one that I'm referring to is in verse 2. It likens the Messiah to a root out of dry ground. That's the metaphor. That That the Messiah is like a root out of dry ground. Now think about that. This is not a root in the ground. This is a root out of the ground. This is not a root lying next to a, on top of a piece of fertile soil. No, no, no. This is a root out of sitting, lying on a piece of dry dirt, only to be kicked to the side of the path. Now, why do you raise that, Jimmy? Here's why. Because that metaphor of the Messiah being a root out of dry ground begins to get fleshed out in the birth narrative. Gang, if your view of this little scene here is too sanitized, you are going to miss one of Luke's major reasons for writing this. And that is to show you the poverty of this little couple. You know, if they'd had a little money, they might have found a room that night in Bethlehem. But they didn't have any money. And do you remember later on in this chapter, when they come to present Jesus, Jimmy read about it, um, they come to present Jesus uh, and offer their sacrifices. Well, you know there's a, 
There's a sacrifice for rich people. There's a sacrifice for the middle class people. And then there's a sacrifice for the poor people. Well, guess which one Joseph and Mary paid? The two turtle doves that you can buy for a penny? What, what that part of the text is telling you is the same thing that we're being told here. The poverty of this little couple, Joseph and Mary. Gang, the Son of God was invited to enter his own world through the back door in the filthiest place in the world Purity gets born, and it is purity that is killable, vulnerable, and rejected. Folks, when Christ made his appearance among us, we pointed him to the outhouse in the back of the place, and we've been trying to keep him out there ever since. The manger, which is nothing but a feeding trough, this manger in which he was laid is the only consistent place for one who is likened unto a root out of dry ground. You see, if you're, if you're something other than a root out of the dry ground, you, you get born in a, in a more sanitary place place you get born in a nicer place but this root out of dry ground he starts in a feeding trough and he ends up on a cross this season of humiliation where he is a root out of dry ground begins with him being a zygote in his mother's womb and then he is first seen by humans Lying in a feeding trough, omnipotence wrapped in rags, deity appearing in the place where we least expect him. Why? Well, because, because you see, he's a root out of dry ground. What you're reading here, folks is the fleshing out of another prediction made about him in Isaiah 53. The scene is not a sanitized one. It's a brutal one. Because the promised Messiah much more resembles a root out of dry ground than some kind of sanitary little doll all being stared at by a bunch of smiling cows. (laughs) So that's the second thing that I hope you won't miss is is the brutality of what's happening here with Christ. Now, gang, so Jesus is born. Here's the third thing. So Jesus is born, and his first step towards Calvary begins with a no vacancy sign. That's the third, this is the third thing that I want you to see. Let me, let me, um, let me flesh this out just a little bit. Gang, um, everybody else gets a room. The politicians get a room because they're important people. They're people of rank. All the executive suites are full. 
they're full of rich people. And, and all the good people, the, 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 um, the, uh, the popular people, uh, they, they got a room. Uh, all the rooms are filled with these big egos. The halls of higher learning, they're full. They're full of men worshiping man. And they're discussing how smart they all are. And they've even got smartphones to prove it. They get a room. Um, the, 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 uh, the synagogues are full, uh, full of empty ritual. They've all got a room. But, but, um, but the Savior of mankind does not get a room. L- let me show you what you got. Let me show you the kind of people that relate to him. Uh, unlike the innkeeper who has no room, there are people who, who do uh, have room for this Savior. People like Matthew. Matthew chapter 9. You remember him, um, the chief tax collector? He, everybody hated him except the other tax collectors. And then that unnamed prostitute in Luke 7, she, uh, uh, she, she, uh, she certainly, she's the one that you know, washed his feet with her tears and dried them with the hair. And then, then there's those, that, that group of sinners that are mentioned by the Pharisees in Luke 15. Uh, you know, they are people who know that it's far, it's far more important to have your sin forgiven than it is to get a place at the table or to have a room. None of them get a room because if you're going to go out to meet with this Savior, you're going to have to bow. All those people with the rooms, they, they don't want to bow. Here's my point, folks. This story shouts of his deity. How so there, Jimmy? Um, Well, folks, um, would human authors have created a birth narrative like this for their hero? Is this the stuff of legend? No, no, folks, if you're writing a legend then your hero comes in a silver suit riding on a lightning bolt. But this is a story, you see, about a savior. I mean, if all the cows are smiling, you might have a legend. But when you're lying in a manger and there's nothing but filth around, That's not a story about a legend. That's a story about a savior, a God-sent savior, born among beasts. And he would later die and be killed by men acting like beasts. He accepted a manger here because there was no other room for him. And then he accepted a cross because men said, We will not have this man to rule over us. He's disowned upon his entering and he's rejected upon his leaving. Deity. Deity shows up where you least expect him. And deity does things that you least expect him to do. That's not legend, ladies and gentlemen. That's a story about a God-sent Savior. Now, folks, 
Christmas is about, is about light coming into a dark world. And yet the light snuck in. He was rejected so that we could be accepted. He came not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. He is rejected by an innkeeper, and later the whole the population of an entire city would cry out to crucify him. The most beautiful thing ever was found in a place of the ugly. This is a story about a Savior. And the story about that Savior is called the Gospel. And here's the Gospel. Listen. The Gospel is a story about the wisdom of God ordaining a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. That's the story that's contained here. Let me tell you that story one more quick time. This is a story about how the wisdom of God found a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. And all of that story is found here. And I hope that you won't miss any of that. Our Father, would you indeed show us the great profundity of what's being described to us in this very familiar passage? That it's a story about your providence and the brutality that the Savior experienced upon entrance. It's a story about deity having arrived in a way that we never dreamed or expected. That what we have here is a story of, of hope for the undeserving sinner like me. A story about how you are willing to be reconciled through the person and the work of Jesus Christ who bore your wrath so that your justice could be satisfied and love could be extended to the undeserving like us. Might that never be missed, O oh God, while in our busyness and in our enjoyment of the season, might that never be missed, that you have used history to bring about the great redemption of your people. Father, if you brought people here this morning who have not yet met our Savior, might they see him not in legendary terms. Might they see him in the real terms that are described here. And might they be carried away with the beauty of the gospel story. We ask it, of course, 
in Jesus' name. Amen.